Section four of To the Last Man by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two, part two. Jean's first sight of his future home thrilled him through. It was a big, low, rambling log structure, standing well out from a wooded knoll at the edge of the valley. Corrals and barns and sheds lay off at the back. To the fore stretched broad pastures where numberless cattle and horses grazed. At sunset the scene was one of rich color. Prosperity and abundance and peace seemed attendant upon that ranch. Lusty voices of burros braying and cows bawling seemed welcoming Jean. A hound bayed. The first cool touch of wind fanned Jean's cheek and brought a fragrance of wood smoke and frying ham. Horses in the pasture romped to the fence and whistled at these newcomers. Jean espied a white-faced black horse that gladdened his sight. Hello, white-face. I'll sure straddle you, called Jean. Then up the gentle slope he saw the tall figure of his father, the same as he had seen him thousands of times, bareheaded, shirt-sleeved, striding with long step. Jean waved and called to him. Hi, you prodigal, came the answer. Yes, the voice of his father, and Jean's boyhood memories flashed. He hurried his horse those last few rods. No, Dad was not the same. His hair shone gray. Here I am, Dad, called Jean, and then he was dismounting. A deep, quiet emotion settled over him, stilling the hurry, the eagerness, the pang in his breast. Son, I sure am glad to see you, said his father, and wrung his hand. Well, well, the size of you. Sure you've grown, and how you favor your mother. Jean felt in the iron clasp of hand, in the uplifting of the handsome head, in the strong, fine light of piercing eyes, that there was no difference in the spirit of his father. But the old smile could not hide lines and shades strange to Jean. Dad? I'm as glad as you, replied Jean heartily. It seems long we've been parted. Now I see you. Are you well, Dad, and all right? No complaining, son. I can ride all day, same as ever, he said. Come, never mind your horses. They'll be looked after. Come meet the folks. Well, well, you got here at last. On the porch of the house a group awaited Jean's coming. Rather silently, he thought. Wide-eyed children were there, very shy and watchful. The dark face of his sister corresponded with the image of her in his memory. She appeared taller, more womanly, as she embraced him. "'Oh, Jean, Jean, I'm glad you've come,' she cried, and pressed him close. Jean felt in her womanly anxiety for the present as well as affection for the past. He remembered his Aunt Mary— though he had not seen her for years. His half-brothers, Bill and Guy, had changed little except perhaps to grow lean and rangy. Bill resembled his father, though his aspect was jocular rather than serious. Guy was smaller, wiry, and hard as rock, with snapping eyes and a brown, still face, and he had the bow legs of a cattleman. Both had married in Arizona, Bill's wife, Kate, was a stout, comely little woman, 
mother of three children. The other wife was young, a strapping girl, red-headed and freckled, with wonderful lines of pain and strength in her face. Jean remembered, as he looked at her, that someone had written him about the tragedy in her life. When she was only a child, the Apaches had murdered all her family. The next to greet Jean were the little children, all shy, yet all manifestly impressed by the occasion. A warmth and intimacy of forgotten home emotions flooded over Jean. Sweet it was to get home to these relatives who loved him and welcomed him with quiet gladness. But there seemed more. Jean was quick to see the shadow in the eyes of the women in that household and to sense a strange reliance which his presence brought. "'Son, this here, Tonto, is a land of milk and honey,' said his father, as Jean gazed spellbound at the bounteous supper. Jean certainly performed gastronomic feats on this occasion, to the delight of Aunt Mary and the wonder of the children. "'Oh, he's starved to death,' whispered one of the little boys to his sister. They had begun to warm to this stranger uncle. Jean had no chance to talk, even if he had been able to, for the mealtime showed a relaxation of restraint, and they all tried to tell him things at once. In the bright lamplight, his father looked easier and happier as he beamed upon Jean. After supper, the men went into an adjoining room that appeared most comfortable and attractive. It was long, and the width of the house, with a huge stone fireplace, low ceiling of hewn timbers, and walls of the same. Small windows, with inside shutters of wood, and homemade table, and chairs, and rugs. "'Well, Jean, do you recollect those shooting irons?' inquired the rancher, pointing above the fireplace. Two guns hung on the spreading deer antlers there. One was a musket, Jean's father had used in the War of the Rebellion, and the other was a long, heavy, muzzle-loading flintlock Kentucky rifle, with which Jean had learned to shoot. "'Reckon I do, Dad,' replied Jean, and with reverent hands and a rush of memory, he took the old gun down. "'Jean, you sure handle that old arm some clumsy,' said Guy Isbel dryly, and Bill added a remark to the effect that perhaps Jean had been leading a luxurious and tame life back there in Oregon and then added, but I reckon he's packing that six-shooter like a Texan. Say, I fetched a gun or two along with me, replied Jean jocularly. Reckon I near broke my poor mule's back with the load of shells and guns. Dad, what was the idea of asking me to pack out an arsenal? Son, sure all shooting arms and such are at a premium in the Tonto, replied his father, and I was giving you a hunch to come loaded. His cool, drawing voice seemed to put a damper upon the pleasantries. Right there Jean sensed the charged atmosphere. His brothers were bursting with utterance about to break forth, and his father suddenly wore a look that recalled the Jean critical times of days long past. But the entrance of the children and the women folk put an end to confidences. Evidently the youngsters were laboring under subdued excitement. They preceded their mother, the smallest boy in the lead. For him, 
This must have been both a dreadful and wonderful experience, for he seemed to be pushed forward by his sister and brother and mother, and driven by yearnings of his own. There now, Lee. Say, Uncle Jean, what did you fetch us? The lad hesitated for a shy, frightened look at Jean, and then, gaining something from his scrutiny of his uncle, he toddled forward and bravely delivered the question of tremendous importance. "'What did I fetch you, hey?' cried Jean in delight as he took the lad upon his knee. "'Wouldn't you like to know?' "'I didn't forget, Lee. I remembered you all. Oh, the job I had packing your bundle of presents. Now, Lee, make a guess.' "'I guess you fetched a dun,' replied Lee. "'A dun?' "'I'll bet you mean a gun,' laughed Jean. "'Well, you four-year-old Texas gunman, make another guess.' That appeared too momentous and entrancing for the other two youngsters, and adding their shrill and joyous voices to Lee's, they besieged John. "'Dad, where's my pack?' cried John. "'These young Apaches are after my scalp.' "'Reckon the boys fetched it onto the porch,' replied the rancher. Guy Isbel opened the door and went out. "'By golly, here's three packs,' he called. "'Which one do you want, John?' It's a long, heavy bundle, all tied up, replied Jean. Guy came staggering in under a burden that brought a whoop from the youngsters and bright gleams to the eyes of the women. Jean lost nothing of this. How glad he was that he had tarried in San Francisco because of a mental picture of this very reception in far-off, wild Arizona. When Guy deposited the bundle on the floor, it jarred the room. It gave forth metallic and rattling and crackling sounds. "'Everybody stand back and give me elbow room,' ordered John majestically. "'My good folks, I want you all to know that this is something that doesn't happen often. The bundle you see here weighed about a hundred pounds when I packed it on my shoulder down Market Street in Frisco. It was stolen from me on shipboard. I got it back in San Diego and licked the thief. It rode on a burro from San Diego to Yuma, and once I thought the burro was lost for keeps. It came up the Colorado River from Yuma to Ehrenberg, and there went on top of a stage. We got chased by bandits, and once, when the horses were galloping hard, it near rolled off. Then it went on the back of a pack horse and helped wear him out. And I reckon it would be somewhere else now if I hadn't fallen in with a freighter going north from Phoenix to the Santa Fe Trail. The last lap, when it sagged the back of a mule, was the riskiest and full of the narrowest escapes. Twice my mule bucked off his pack and left my outfit scattered. Worst of all, my precious bundle made the mule top-heavy coming down the place back here where the trail seems to drop off the earth. Then I was hard put to keep sight of my pack. Sometimes it was on top, and other times the mule. But it got here at last, and now I'll open it. After this long and impressive harangue, which at least augmented the suspense of the women and worked the children into a frenzy, Jean leisurely untied the many knots round the bundle and unrolled it. He had packed that bundle for just such travel as it had sustained. Three cloth-bound rifles he laid aside, with them a long, 
very heavy package tied between two thin, wide boards. From this came the metallic clink. Oh, I know what them is, cried Lee, breaking the silence of suspense. Then Jean, tearing open a long, flat parcel, spread out before the mute, rapt-eyed youngsters such magnificent things as they had never dreamed of. Picture books, mouth harps, dolls, a toy gun and a toy pistol, a wonderful whistle and a fox horn, and last of all, a box of candy. Before these treasures on the floor, too magical to be touched at first, the two little boys and their sister simply knelt. That was a sweet full moment for Jean, yet even that was clouded by the something which shadowed these innocent children, fatefully born in a wild place at a wild time. Next Jean gave to his sister the present he had brought her, beautiful cloth for a dress, ribbons and a bit of lace, handkerchiefs and buttons, and yards of linen, a sewing case and a whole box of spools of thread, a comb and brush and a mirror, and lastly, a Spanish brooch inlaid with garnets. There, Anne, said Jean, I confessed I asked a girlfriend in Oregon to tell me some things my sister might like. Manifestly, there was not much difference in girls. Anne seemed stunned by this munificence, and then awakening, she hugged John in a way that took his breath. She was not a child any more, that was certain. Aunt Mary turned, knowing eyes upon John. Reckon you couldn't have pleased Anne more. She's engaged, John, and where girls are in that state, these things mean a heap. Anne, you'll be married in that. She pointed to the beautiful folds of material that Anne had spread out. What's this? demanded Jean. His sister's blushes were enough to convict her, and they were mightily becoming, too. Here, Aunt Mary, went on Jean, here's yours, and here's something for each of my new sisters. This distribution left the women as happy and occupied, almost as the children. It left also another package, the last one in the bundle. Jean laid hold of it, and lifting it, he was about to speak when he sustained a little shock of memory. Quite distinctly he saw two little feet, with bare toes peeping out of worn-out moccasins, and then round, bare symmetrical ankles that had been scratched by brush. Next he saw Ellen Jorth's passionate face as she looked when she had made the violent action so disconcerting to him. In this happy moment the memory seemed farther off than a few hours. It had crystallized. It annoyed while it drew him. As a result, he slowly laid this package aside and did not speak as he had intended to. Dad, I reckon I didn't fetch a lot for you and the boys, continued John. Some knives, some pipes and tobacco, and sure the guns. Sure, you're a regular Santa Claus, John, replied his father. Well, well, look at the kids, and look at Mary, and for the land's sakes, look at Anne. Wow, well, I'm getting old. I'd forgotten the pretty stuff and gym cracks that mean so much to women. We're out of the world here. It's just as well you've lived apart from us, John, for coming back this way with all that stuff does us a lot of good. I can't say, son, how obliged I am. My mind has been set on the hard side of life, and it's sure good to forget 
to see the smiles of the women and the joy of the kids. At this juncture, a tall young man entered the open door. He looked a rider. All about him, even his face, except his eyes, seemed old. But his eyes were young, fine, soft, and dark. How do y'all, he said evenly. Anne rose from her knees. Then Jean did not need to be told who this newcomer was. Jean, this is my friend, Andrew Colmer. Jean knew, when he met Colmer's grip, and the keen flash of his eyes, that he was glad Anne had set her heart upon one of their kind. And his second impression was something akin to the one given him in the road by the admiring lad. Colmer's estimate of him must have been a monument built of Anne's eulogies. Jean's heart suffered misgivings. Could he live up to the character that somehow had forestalled his advent in Grass Valley? Surely life was measured differently here in the Tonto Basin. The children, bundling their treasures to their bosoms, were dragged off the bed in some remote part of the house, from which their laughter and voices came back with happy significance. Jean forthwith had an interested audience. How eagerly these lonely pioneer people listened to news of the outside world. Jean talked until he was hoarse. In their turn, his hearers told him much that had never found place in the few and short letters he had received since he had been left in Oregon. Not a word about sheepmen or any hint of rustlers. Jean marked the omission and thought all the more seriously of probabilities because nothing was said. Altogether, the evening was a happy reunion of a family of which all living members were there present. Jean grasped that this fact was one of significant satisfaction to his father. "'Sure we're all going to live together here,' he declared. "'I start at this range. I call most of this valley mine. We'll run up a cabin for Anne, as soon as she says the word. And you, Jean, where's your girl?' I sure told you to fetch her. Dad, I didn't have one, replied John. Well, I wish you had, returned the rancher. You'll go courtin' one of these Tonto hussies that I might object to. Why, father, there's not a girl in the valley Jean would look at twice, interposed Aunt Isbel, with spirit. Jean laughed the matter aside, but he had an uneasy memory. Aunt Mary averred, after the manner of relatives, that Jean would play havoc among the women of the settlement, and Jean retorted that at least one member of the Isbels should hold out against folly and fight and love and marriage, the agents which had reduced the family to these few present. I'll be the last Isabel to go under, he concluded. Son, you're talking wisdom, said his father, and sure that reminds me of the uncle you're named after. Jean Isbel. Well, he was my youngest brother, and sure a fire-eater. Our mother was a French Creole from Louisiana, and Jean must have inherited some of his fighting nature from her. When the War of the Rebellion started, Jean and I enlisted. I was crippled before we even got to the front. But Jean went through three years before he was killed. His company had orders to fight to the last man and Jean fought and lived long enough just to be that last man. At length Jean was left alone with his father. 
"'Reckon you're used to bunking outdoors?' queried the rancher, rather abruptly. "'Most of the time,' replied Jean. "'Well, there's room in the house, but I want you to sleep out. Come, get your bedding and gun. I'll show you.' They went outside on the porch, where Jean shouldered his roll of tarpaulin and blankets. His rifle, in its saddle sheath, leaned against the door. His father took it up, and half pulling it out, looked at it by the starlight. Forty-four, huh? Well, well, they're sure no better. If a man can hold straight. At the moment a big gray dog trotted up to sniff at Jean. And here's your bunkmate, Shep. He's part loafer, Jean. His mother was a favorite shepherd dog of mine. His father was a big timber wolf that took us two years to kill. Some bad wolf packs running in this basin. The night was cold and still, darkly bright, under moon and stars. The smell of hay seemed to mingle with that of cedar. Jean followed his father round the house and up a gentle slope of grass to the edge of the cedar line. Here several trees with low, sweeping, thick branches formed a dense, impenetrable shade. Son, your Uncle Jean scouted for Liggett one of the greatest rebels the South had, said the rancher, and you're going to be scout for the Isbels of Tonto. Reckon you'll find it most as hot as your uncle did. Spread your bed inside. You can see out, but no one can see you. Reckon there's been some queer happenings round here lately. If Shep could talk, he'd sure have a lot to tell us. Bill and Guy have been sleeping out, trailing strange horse tracks and all that. But sure as ever been prowling around here was too sharp for them. Some bad, crafty, light-steppin' woodsmen around here, Jean. Three mornings ago, just after daylight, I stepped out the back door, and some one of these sneaks I'm talking about took a shot at me. Missed my head a quarter of an inch. Tomorrow I'll show you the bullet hole in the doorpost and some of my gray hairs that are sticking in it. Dad ejaculated Jean with an outstretched hand. That's awful. You frighten me. No time to be scared, replied his father calmly. They sure is going to kill me. That's why I wanted you home. In there with you, now. Go to sleep. You sure can trust Shep to wake you if he gets scent or sound. And good night, my son. I'm saying that I'll rest easy tonight. Jean mumbled a good night and stood watching his father's shining white head move away under the starlight. Then the tall, dark form vanished. A door closed, and all was still. The dog Shep licked Jean's hand. Jean felt grateful for that warm touch. For a moment he sat on his roll of bedding, his thought still locked on the shuddering revelation of his father's words. They're sure going to kill me. The shock of inaction passed. Jean pushed his pack in the dark opening, and crawling inside, he unrolled it and made his bed. When at length he was comfortably settled for the night, he breathed a long sigh of relief. What bliss to relax! A throbbing and burning of his muscles seemed to begin with his rest. The cool starlight night, the smell of cedar, the moan of wind, the silence, and were real to his senses. After long weeks of long, arduous travel, he was home.
The warmth of the welcome still lingered, but it seemed to have been pierced by an icy thrust. What lay before him? The shadow in the eyes of his aunt, in the younger, fresher eyes of his sister. Jean connected that with the meaning of his father's tragic words. Far past was the morning that had been so keen, the breaking of camp in the sunlit forest, the riding down the brown aisles under the pines, the music of bleeding lambs that had called him not to pass by. Thought of Ellen Jorth recurred. He had met her only that morning. She was up in the forest asleep under the starlit pines. Who was she? What was her story? That savage fling of her skirt, her bitter speech and passionate flaming face, they haunted Jean. They were crystallizing into simpler memories, growing away from his bewilderment, and therefore at once sweeter and more doubtful. Maybe she meant differently from what I thought, Jean soliloquized. Anyway, she was honest. Both shame and thrill possessed him at the recall of an insidious idea. Dare he go back and find her and give her the last package of gifts he had brought from the city? What might they mean to poor, ragged, untidy, beautiful Ellen Jorth? The idea grew on Jean. It could not be dispelled. He resisted stubbornly. It was bound to go to its fruition. Deep into his mind had sunk an impression of her need, a material need that brought spirit and pride to abasement. From one picture to another, his memory wandered. From one speech and act of hers to another, choosing, selecting, casting aside, until clear and sharp as the stars shone, the words, Oh, I've been kissed before. That stung him now. By whom? Not by one man, but by several, by many, she had meant. Shaw, he had only been sympathetic and drawn by a strange girl in the woods. Tomorrow he would forget. Work there was for him in Grass Valley. And he reverted uneasily to the remarks of his father, until at last sleep claimed him. A cold nose against his cheek, a low whine, awakened Jean. The big dog Shep was beside him, keen, wary, intense. The night appeared far advanced toward dawn. Far away a cock crowed. The near-at-hand one answered in clarion voice. "'What is it, Shep?' whispered Jean. And he sat up. The dog smelled or heard something suspicious to his nature. But whether man or animal, Jean could not tell. End of chapter 2, part 2